Welcome back to the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast, the podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hi, Paul. Hi, Dr. Watto. How are you? I'm doing exceptionally well. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to introduce our guest uh, for this episode, Dr. Carl DeGramji. He is a board-certified physician in both psychiatry and sleep medicine. He is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior who currently has a role as the director of sleep dis- as the director of the Sleep Disorder Center at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. This makes him highly qualified to talk to Paul and I about the topic of insomnia, which is something that is pretty much uh, rampant in internal medicine practice. So I don't know about you, Paul, but I definitely uh, found out a lot of things I was doing wrong in talking to Dr. DeGromji, and I think it's going to be really helpful to our listeners. Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to make a joke about sleepless nights, but then thought better of it. But yeah, he certainly educated me. (laughs) Okay. So we get into the non-pharmacologic treatment of sleep disorders, as well as pretty much every medication or supplement that Paul and I could think of uh, patients would commonly ask about for the uh, for treating insomnia. So this episode is exceptionally high yield, and I hope you will all enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Oh, and I should also mention here that we had a little bit of technical difficulties, or I should say Paul had a little bit of technical difficulties. So He's going to magically join us at about, uh, I don't know, 15 minutes into the, into the interview here. Thanks and enjoy. Hello. Oh, hi, Matthew. Yes. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. This Good. Is, can, can you hear or see me? I can't see you, just hear you, but, oh, actually I can see you. Yeah. So we can, uh, we can do the video if you want. Um, usually I... Usually I have the video off. Hi there. Hey. <laughs> we usually have the video off just because, uh, I don't know, sometimes it might slow down the connection, but we can see how it goes. Okay. So are there any uh, learning objectives that you'd like to give our listeners up front? So I think our our main goals today are, number one, to be able to uh, understand uh, the clinical definition of insomnia And uh, number two, to be able to understand its pathophysiology to some extent. Number three, to be able to sort of formulate uh, a rational rational evidence-based strategy to be able to evaluate insomnia and to treat it in clinical settings. So I think those are the three objectives. So what is the pathophysiology of insomnia? So, you know, Matt, we, we, uh, we know that insomnia can exist in two different formats. Number one, it can exist as a separate clinical entity. We refer to this as insomnia disorder, something we used to refer to as uh, primary insomnia in the past. And uh, it can also exist as, a, um, as a, 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 a process which is comorbid or coexistent with other medical and psychiatric conditions. Now, when it comes to insomnia disorder, we think that the pathophysiologic aberration is a, a process of hyperarousal or hyperactivation 
uh, of many psychological as well as uh, biological processes within the body. These have um, uh, these have uh, we, we can see manifestations of this hyperarousal in the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the sympathetic nervous system, brain metabolism is increased uh, during both sleep and wakefulness. Insomniacs, we know, have increased um, uh, uh, metabolic rates and EEG arousal. And from a cognitive standpoint, we also know that their entire uh, cognitive or brain uh, speed, if you will, is increased in, is significantly. So insomnia seems to be a disorder of hyperarousal along various metabolic, psychological, and neurobehavioral uh, parameters. And this hyperarousal occurs not only during the nighttime, but also during the day. It's a 24-hour disorder. Uh, now, insomnia can also exist, as I mentioned before, in conjunction with other uh, medical and psychiatric disorders. And we think that in this case, it may actually be something related to um, downstream effects of these disorders, and therefore the the etiology may rest in whatever's going on with those other disorders, such as depression, mm-hmm. and such as uh, such as um, uh, you know a GERD, reflux, reflux, or whatever. So uh, beyond that, uh, the understanding of insomnia is, is is scant. And what's kind of interesting is we think that at least in uh, in, in, in some people, maybe genetically mediated, there have been a number of studies where animal models of insomnia have been developed and experimented on with, uh, with uh, primitive animals such as even fruit flies. So uh, this, this is the hyperarousal hypothesis is central uh, to our understanding of insomnia. <clears throat> Do you think that it's an acquired disorder or, or you, well, mentioning the genetics, I guess that would imply that they are that they're born with this. So some people are just going to be more prone to developing insomnia. Yes, we think so. And in fact, there have been twin studies with insomnia showing that uh, uh, adoptive twins are more likely to have insomnia. Uh, you know, uh, by, by virtue of being twins. So, so we think that. There is a biological process of inheritance with insomnia, but beyond that, we don't quite understand what that specifically is. Okay. Now, in, as, as a general internist, uh, pra- I, I practice mostly primary care. I see a lot of patients and I, I call, I, if someone has sleep problems, I usually call it insomnia. I imagine that's inappropriate because many of these, <clears throat> many of these folks will have other disorders going on. Are we missing a lot of stuff when, when you see patients in your clinic for insomnia, are there primary care doctors commonly missing treatable conditions? Well, you know, first of all, if a patient simply um, complains that they are having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up with a sensation of uh, poor sleep quality, by definition, that is insomnia. So, uh, the, the the question you're asking, though, I think uh, it, it implies, should we be asking about other potential comorbidities or coexisting disorders? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, if insomnia does exist, one of our first strategies uh, and before treatment is to identify these comorbidities and thereby and then thereafter treat them in a primary fashion. Because in about half of the cases that we have of insomnia, that alone can get rid of the insomnia complaint. So absolutely a thorough medical psychiatric evaluation and treating those primary comorbid disorders is critical. Are there, so of course sleep apnea is one that comes to mind and, and the mood disorders. Are there others that are really common that that uh, that, that come to your mind that, that a primary doctor might forget to think of? 
Right. Psychiatric disorders are very common. About 40 to 50 percent of insomniacs have a primary psychiatric disorder. And uh, the most common ones there are, are depressive disorders of various kinds, anxiety disorders, and substance use disorders. Now, uh, one, one thing I want to mention about depression in the context of an insomnia patient, many insomniacs are not aware of their depression per se and may not even complain about depression and tend to focus on the insomnia complaint. So we kind of have to look at other stigmata of depression in these patients, such as weight loss, anhedonia, or loss of pleasure in daily activities, um, loss of appetite, um, uh, 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 and, 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 and global fatigue, concentration difficulty, and so on. Uh, and, and to be able to treat those folks for that presumed depressive disorder, even if their mood uh, does not quite come out, come out and strike you as being a depressed patient. Uh, I mention that because many depressives tend to focus on the insomnia itself when their primary comp- disorder really is the depression or the mood disturbance. Secondly, as I said, anxiety disorder is very, very common the most common of which is generalized anxiety disorder. But there are many insomniacs that have post-traumatic stress. And the clue there, of course, is that they have these troublesome dreams and recurring nightmares, which then need to be treated primarily to get rid of the insomnia. Now, going on to some of the more physiologic or physical abnormalities, Sleep apnea is very common. We think about 10 to 20% of people who come in with a complaint of insomnia have that. Restless leg syndrome or an unusual uh, sensation of high energy within both lower extremities and need to move both lower extremities, typically lower extremities or maybe even the arms at times uh, right before bedtime is the, hallmark, is the hallmark complaint. And these folks have problems falling asleep or even staying asleep because of this problem. Uh, of course, number three, circadian rhythm disturbances or biological clock disorders Uh, one of which is the most common of which is shift work disorder where individuals because of their rapidly rotating shifts develop difficulty falling or staying asleep or even things that occur more in young young adulthood such as delayed sleep phase syndrome a disorder characterized by delayed bedtimes. These are youngsters who cannot fall asleep until two or three in the morning and then wake up late into the day Um, and and it's thought to be a result of a maturational lag in the biological clock and then treated, of course, with a combination of light and melatonin. So these are some of the more common disorders. I must say, though, that many medical and uh, disorders which uh, are also associated with insomnia, for example, gastroesophageal reflux disease, we've done work showing that people with uh, even asymptomatic GERD uh, may wake up repeatedly. And what is causing the awakening is, of course, reflux of acid into the esophagus, which then causes an arousal, which then wakes people up. Uh, Or even chronic pain conditions could be responsible as well, Uh, and so on and so forth. So good medical evaluation is critical. One thing that's uh, very common in our current day life um, or, or, or a set of factors are the habits that we engage in which disrupt our sleep. A common habit is the right. you know, PDA or watching television close to bedtime or an iPhone or iPad, whatever. Uh, that light that is emitted, is emitted from those devices can cause a delay in our melatonin cycle and poor sleep. So mm. uh, one of the important things obviously to do there is to make the one hour or two prior to bedtime somewhat uh, devoid of, 
of too 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 much bright light, and you know uh, things like stress uh, related to our jobs and uh, uh, working late into the night and and so on. And some of these sort of so-called sleep hygiene aberrations are very very commonly associated with insomnia. So I think to be able to tease apart these various medical habits and psychiatric factors is critical before we go on to treatment. And that's, I mean, that's a lot to look out for. So you could, you could see why as a primary care doctor, not one of my favorite topics because it's, uh, there's so much that you, you potentially have to dig into, you know, control their pain, uh, treat their GERD, make sure that they're not reading on their iPhone before bed, which I imagine almost, I mean, people are addicted to screens, uh, me included. And it's very, you know, I, I actually am pretty conscious of this. I try at like eight or nine o'clock at night, depending on my bedtime to be like, I have to turn off the screens now and read a paper book because it's, yeah, I'm man, that is just, that is just crazy. Uh, but you mentioned something about, uh, the insomnia as a symptom of OSA. So can insomnia be one of the only symptoms of OSA? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, as I said before, about fifteen percent of uh, insomniacs have OSA, and and it's not necessarily true that all of those folks snore loudly. Snoring is a subjective complaint, and uh, uh, its its detection, of course, depends critically upon the presence of a bed partner, and uh, and even further the the, the presence of a very a very astutely uh, astute bed partner. So. Uh, many do not report snoring. I think one way to detect um, in uh, the, the the potential for sleep apnea in an insomnia patient is a um, is a an inventory called the Stop Bang S T O P B A N G, and it's a four symptoms. Of course, the first of which is snoring. Um, T stands for tiredness or fatigue or sleepiness. Uh, the the uh, the the P is hypertension or high blood pressure, um, and O is for somebody being observed stopping breathing in their sleep, and the B's part the B is the body mass index, and that relies on a BMI of greater than uh, thirty. Uh, the neck N is the neck circumference of sixteen inches or low or, or higher, and G is for gender male. So that's that's a that's an inventory which is easily available online. And if any three of those um, categories or more are positive, then that patient may have a high likelihood for having sleep apnea, even if they do not necessarily snore. And of course, at that point, the uh, testing in a sleep laboratory would be a good idea. Yeah. And the, the, and then that gets into part of the issue, which is can, uh, can someone comply with their, their CPAP, but that's a that's a tough thing. Okay. I would like to get into some of the non-pharmacologic therapies that are effective for insomnia since the medical therapies which we will probably spend the majority the rest of the talk on, a lot of them have a lot of side effects. So, what are some good non-pharmacologic therapies that are available? Well, you know, uh one of the uh one of the important therapies Matt, is to is to pay good attention to sleep hygiene and work on some sleep hygiene rules. Uh, a couple of which we mentioned already, such as avoiding of uh, avoidance of light close to bedtime, and, and along those lines, 
in terms of light, there are now available blue light filters, which actually are orange in color, which people can use about an hour or so prior to bedtime. These are usually glasses which people put on, and they may be effective. And there are also programs that uh, can also be introduced to one's uh, PDA or even computer, which begin to change the spectrum of light from uh, from bluer spectra over to maybe more orange or redder spectra, which actually also may be helpful in terms of the melatonin curve. But also um, establishing a regular daily routine, waking up at the same time every morning as much as possible, and trying to go to, go, go to bed at the same time, although waking up at the same time and getting up out of bed is more critical in terms of circadian rhythm restoration than the actual bedtime itself. Of course, avoiding things which may be disruptive for sleep that we ingest, such as caffeine, especially after lunchtime, caffeine may have a long duration of effect because of its erratic absorption uh, in, through the GI tract. And alcohol, of course, despite the fact that it may be uh, fairly uh, effective in terms of putting people to sleep, it's a soporific agent and sedating agent, may actually have negative effects in terms of sleep itself because it's, it's metabolized fairly quickly as the night progresses. And there seems to be a withdrawal effect uh, during the course of the night producing poor sleep after the, about two or three hours. So it really has a defeating uh, 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 it really defeats the purpose and has a negative net effect on sleep. Uh, finally, not having too many, uh, too much to drink or eat within three or four hours of bedtime. We spoke about GERD, and in some people, that reflux may be responsible for poor sleep. Uh, so those are just some strategies, and the, these. Uh, sleep hygiene measures are published uh, in many, many different venues and could be followed. I think it's important to to try these for the for the uh, person who's involved in primary care. Uh, some of the other cognitive behavioral uh, strategies may also be worthwhile learning. For example, uh, a, 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 a cognitive. Uh, I'm sorry, stimulus control therapy. It's a very simple therapy which says to patients, if you cannot. Uh, fall asleep within half an hour, 20 minutes or so, or if you wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep, then get out of bed and uh, go into a different room, a dimly lit room, and try to relax as much as possible, do something not so stimulating or exciting, and then come back to bed when you feel sleepy. Uh, It basically tries to overcome this behavioral, negative behavior, I should say, of lying in bed, brooding over sleeplessness and trying harder to fall asleep and begins to uh, take away this unconscious association which the mind begins to have between poor sleep and being in bed. It's a, it's a, it's a therapy which seems to be very helpful. Some uh, physicians and or their uh, office uh, extenders, nurse practitioners, nurses, whatnot, learn techniques of progressive muscle relaxa- relaxation where patients... Uh, may be able to gradually reduce the tension in, in, their, in their muscles by learning these tension reduction exercises with the verbal assistance of a, a nurse practitioner or a nurse. Um, and and at, at times it's important to be engaged in something called cognitive therapy, which really is a way of uh, addressing the cognitive or mental distortions that patients have regarding their sleep. So, for example, patients may say, you know, I really need eight or nine hours of sleep to, to feel refreshed and, and to be able to challenge some of those bad assumptions. Or patients may say, you know, I really absolutely need to, uh, 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 if I don't, if I, I need to focus on sleep every minute of every day, begin to question some of those things. So, Cognitive behavioral therapies, muscle tension relaxation techniques, these are very helpful. What's also very interesting 
is that these techniques not only work as well as pharmacologic agents, interestingly, but they have longer lasting potential. So after the discontinuation of a pharmacologic agent, typically insomnia comes back within a week or two. Mm. But uh, the data clearly show that CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy has lasting potential up to a year or even two years after discontinuation of therapy. I should also say, Matt, that there are a number of these uh, CBT techniques available online now. Uh, there are two, um, uh, two uh, um, methods that have been validated in, in, in controlled studies, uh, which unfortunately they, they do require some, uh, some out-of-pocket payment on the part of patients and insurance may not reimburse, but the costs are fairly, uh, fairly low. So people cannot themselves, physicians who cannot themselves do these therapies, it may be worthwhile to refer patients to these uh, online CBT modalities. I'm real, and, and sorry, Matt, but yeah. I, I'm super glad that you actually brought up the kind of behavioral therapy. I, I think the American College of Physicians just published their insomnia clinical practice guidelines, and it, I think there were just two guidelines. The first one was UCBT, and then the second one was if you don't have that, then talk to the patient. Which uh-huh. so it's I know in our patient population, I, well, and across the country, access to good CBT can be a challenge, um, and then also in my particular patient population, probably even online access and the computer. Assisted CBT can be can be tricky. I've read up in the pre-reading. I saw uh, sleep restriction as a component of that. So I, I guess I wondered if that was a technique you would advocate using in primary care. And well, I guess that's probably the the first question I have actually. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the uh, CBT techniques that I didn't mention. But uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, that's useful in patients who have uh, disrupted nocturnal sleep or constant and repeated nocturnal awakenings. Uh, And the concept there is to limit the opportunity of time that they actually have in bed to be able to make sleep more productive or more efficient. Um, And the the assumption is that if sleep is more efficient, it's more productive, even though the patient is lying in bed for shorter periods of time. So the way it works is that you work with the patient for a couple of weeks uh, by understanding what their average amount of time spent in bed is. Usually I give people a log, and a sleep log, which they fill out in paper, pencil fashion, and then they come in and I simply add up the number of hours they're in bed. And patients also indicate how many hours or uh, minutes they're actually asleep during that time. So let's just pretend for a second that a patient uh, on average over the past two weeks is in bed uh, for, for 10 hours for the sake of argument, and out of those 10 hours, he's actually asleep for only five. Uh, the sleep efficiency is calculated, which is five over 10, uh, i.e. 50%, which is very, very low. A, a desirable sleep efficiency is 90% or above. So sleep restriction then is introduced to the patient where the patient is asked to now limit their actual bedtime to five hours, which is the equivalent of the time they're actually sleeping. And um, as their sleep efficiency increases by logs that you follow over time, you allow them uh, greater and greater opportunities in bed by increasing the time, uh, by making them or asking them to go to bed a bit earlier. Uh, and you do this until the sleep efficiency stops uh, in increasing. Of course, patients initially become somewhat sleepier during the day because they're now not getting as much sleep initially as they used to, but gradually if they avoid napping, 
that that sleepiness during the day translates into greater sleep at night. As you can see, Paul, this type of therapy does require a good bit of diligence and follow-up on the part of the physician or caregiver. So um, it's not something you can sort of tell the patient to do once and then, you know, come back and see me if they have problems. You really have to follow people through either telephone uh, or, uh, you know, online uh, online uh, uh, modules such as Skype or whatever, or have them come in on a regular basis. But it does work and it does work well. This is a... Uh I, I think that all these behavior things, like any sort of behavior change in your patient, it's just, it's always challenging. It requires time. And, but if, if you invest in it and the patient, if you have the invested patient that, that is willing to educate themselves and, and do the extra work, then, then I think it, it has promise. The, Absolutely. And the, and the other thing that, uh, because this is a, an area of interest of mine, uh, mindfulness uh, and mindfulness meditation or transcendental meditation before bedtime or or twice a day i there I saw at least in the pulmonary sleep literature that there was a um, there was a, a review from the last year or two saying that that has been helpful. The studies were rather small, but it did show some improvement in sleep efficiency and sleep latency and things like that. Absolutely. And there are actually dozens of studies now uh, showing exactly that. You know, mindfulness therapy really is, is a variant of relaxation training, biofeedback. These are all, uh, these all achieve pretty much the same thing, which is a reduction of that arousal, cognitive arousal that we spoke about at the beginning of the show, Matt. And, um, and, and, and the modality by which they do it is a bit different. And I think uh, what, what we need to do is tailor the modality to the specific patient. You know, some people benefit from yoga or deep breathing exercises. Other people benefit from biofeedback. So, but I do think that these are very, these are critical modalities uh, that, um, uh, and, and, and some patients obviously cannot do these. I mean, some people do not have the time. They're busy. Uh, others uh, don't have the ability to come back and go forth from a healthcare setting because of limitations, physical limitations and otherwise. But those who, and by the way, some people simply need help right away. Uh, I'm reminded of patients whose sleep is, was so poor uh, that they literally could not function during the course of the day because of intractable daytime sleepiness. But for the majority of patients, these cognitive behavioral therapy uh, techniques are extraordinarily useful. And so another think- question I had, sorry, I keep step on you, Matt. That's okay, just, Paul. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, what I know. but just in terms of the, the behavior modification, I feel like one of the things I struggle with is I sort of give a shotgun suggestion. So, you know, please don't eat before bed, don't exercise before bed and watch your coffee and no TV in bed. And I sort of give them this sort of laundry list of things not to do. And I, it's, I don't, and probably some of this is my approach, but I've never had a patient come back and say, thank you, you've changed my life. I'm sleeping well. So <laughs> I'm wondering if there's one that's particularly high yield that you, I understand that's very individual, but is there one that is probably the most important to emphasize when you're sort of starting with behavioral stuff? Well, of course. I mean, before you start the, the behavioral changes, you have to sort of understand what is the patient's behavior exactly. Right. Uh, and, I, and I spend a great deal of time trying to understand exactly that through the sleep logs and questionnaires and so on and to t- tailor the behavioral mod to what's wrong. But the, the, the one behavior that's almost, all, uh, what, that's almost uniformly problematic with patients is the time that they get up out of bed in the morning. Uh, typically, insomniacs will go to bed at variable periods of time. But then if they've not slept well, they delay their out-of-bed arousal time to a later point in time to make up for lost sleep. But they almost all do that. And that tends to then disrupt 
the next night's sleep and the night's sleep for the night after that because our circadian rhythms, our timing uh, of our bodies is much, very much dependent upon that bright bolus of bright light in the morning when we get up. So that, that, that bolus of light resyncs, if you will, our next 24-hour day uh, to the light, uh, light and dark cycle of the planet. So, uh, so I, the, the one thing you can do if you do nothing else is to tell patients, well, get up out of bed the same time every morning. That's probably the most likely to have the, the, the one that's likely to have the best effect or the most, the most dramatic effect. But again, as I said before, it's important to find out what is that patient's behavior specifically vis-a-vis bedtime. And in the elderly, I know that taking naps during the day is a huge is a huge thing. They'll take two or three hour nap during the day and then ask me why they only sleep five hours at night. And I say, because you probably got three of your hours of sleep for the day during, you know, during the daytime. Exactly. I'm not sure if I'm correct there, but No, I hundred percent agree. I mean, as we age, that tendency to sleep it deteriorates anyway. Uh, so under the best of circumstances, uh, the uh, sleep becomes to some extent fragmented. And then on top of that, when you take away that sleep pressure uh, by, by, by sleeping during the day, well, you have very little left in terms of that pressure to sleep at nighttime when you go to bed. Now, it, I don't think that that means necessarily that napping is altogether bad for the elderly, for anybody as that for that matter. Some people could benefit from a brief power nap, if you will, or a 15-minute nap or maybe a 20-minute nap one or two times during the course of the day. This is especially true, of course, of shift workers and pilots and truckers and so on. But even in the elderly, that could be beneficial. But I think the idea is do not nap any more than that and save your sleep for bedtime. Okay. Um, I think we could probably, I'm realizing now, do an entire show on non-pharmacologic uh, therapy. <laughs> yeah. But I do want to I, I utilize you while we have you. So let's, let's move into some of the uh, medications or, or at least pills or supplements that are available. So first one on my list was going to be melatonin, which you, you had already mentioned. Yeah, so melatonin um, is an interesting compound. Of course, we have endogenous levels of melatonin, and we and uh, we know that melatonin uh, is active at two separate receptor sites within the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, one receptor seems to be relevant in terms of uh, circadian rhythms uh, in, the, in the in the rest of the body. So melatonin is in if in many ways a signal that the that that uh, the the brain. Uh, sense of the rest of the body to make sure that the whole body is synced with what's going on in the environment, uh, the light-dark cycle of the environment. But melatonin itself also at a separate level of a uh, separate set of receptors seems to also have a direct sleep-promoting effect. So it has two separate effects. Now, what gets tricky about melatonin is that the effect that you have on sleep to a large extent depends on what time melatonin is administered vis-a-vis the underlying circadian uh, endogenous rhythm. So what's been shown is that uh, if, if one administers melatonin four to five hours or so prior to bedtime in a very, very small dose, it's very helpful in um, resyncing rhythms in people or kids who have delayed sleep phase or a, delayed, a, a delay in their biological rhythms. Whereas um, uh, in, in, in general insomniacs, uh, it's better to administer melatonin at a maybe slightly higher dosage, three, four, or five milligrams, a bit closer to bedtime. So the bottom line there is before you give melatonin, try to understand what is the nature of the insomnia. 
Is it a circadian rhythm disorder or is it maybe something like the elderly have, which is a fragmentation of the sleep-wake cycle? Having said that, if it's a nonspecific uh, fragmentation of sleep, something along the lines of three or five milligrams close to bedtime seems to be helpful from a meta-analysis that was released not too long ago in in terms of both diminishing sleep latency and increasing the amount of sleep. But those effects are fairly modest and not quite as robust as what we see with prescription sleeping pills. Another thing about melatonin, its side effects have not been well established because it's not been systematically studied. But there have been a couple of studies indicating that it may actually inhibit uh, melatonin sensitivity and increased glucose levels. Number two, in animal models, it's been shown to have a decreased uh, or rather a a negative effect on spermatogenesis. Remember also that uh, every single body system, uh, every single organ system in the body almost has a melatonin receptor. So we're not clear what stimulating those receptors does over the long haul. So my suggestion is if we use melatonin, you know, and it works, well, maybe it's not a bad idea as long as the patient's not having sedating side effects, but for a short period of time, maybe a month or two, and then discontinue because uh, honestly, we just don't know what it does after long-term administration. Wow. I am... I probably should start uh, being less liberal. I, I was not aware <laughs> of uh, increased glucose levels and impaired spermatogenesis. I mean, most of my most of my patients are no longer trying to uh, bear children, but still. Yeah, um, still. <laughs> that was, uh, by the way, the uh, the uh, glucose tolerance thing that was published in the journal Sleep, twenty fourteen, issue thirty seven. You may want to look it up. Oh man, and any specific formulations of melatonin or brands that that people need to get. Uh, that's another big unknown. Uh, these uh, brands and formulations are not regulated by the FDA, so we honestly don't quite know what's in there. The purity is in question. So I would say to patients, if one formulation does not work, go to the next one. Uh, even the same exact formulation may change in consistency over time, so uh, it's a big question mark. And I'm trying to think of the best way to tackle the the rest of. I mean, there's there's a lot of medications uh, available. So maybe I maybe the best question is just how do you approach looking at which medication you're gonna you're gonna go to when when you're seeing a patient with insomnia. Sure. So let's just address the prescription medications. I think that the main main factor to look for is does the patient have a, dip, has a, have a problem in terms of falling asleep or is the problem one of maintaining sleep? So patients who say, I simply I go to bed and I simply can't fall asleep for maybe you know, hours or whatever, uh, as opposed to the patient who says, I go to bed and I fall asleep, but then I wake up repeatedly over the, over the course of the night. So di- different medications have uses along those two parameters. So as an example, if we just limit ourselves uh, to the Z drugs or the uh, the selective benzodiazepine receptor agonists, Zaloplon and Zolpidem. By the way, am I, do you, would you like me to mention brand names or not? Um, it, it, there are no preference. You can. Okay. Uh, it's up to you. Uh, Zaloplon is Sonata and Zolpidem is Ambien. So those two medications are generally indicated for uh, patients who have difficulty in terms of sleep initiation or who cannot fall asleep quickly. On the other hand, Zolpidem extended release or Ambien CR and S-Zolpiclone, which is Lunesta, are indicated both for people who have problems falling asleep and staying asleep because they've been studied along both of those lines. So if people have an insomnia that's, that transcends the entire night, 
uh, then of those agents that I just mentioned, uh, Zolpidem extended release and then Zolpiclone or Lunesta are probably preferred. Now, another, um, another, another set of medications that came out uh, following those two are um, uh, Remelteon, uh, which is also called Roserum, um, uh, Silenor, uh, which is the brand name for doxepin, low-dose doxepin, available in 3 and 6 milligrams. And uh, 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 another, medi- another more recent medication called Suvorexant, uh, which is an orexin receptor antagonist. Uh, so these last three medications have different mechanisms of action, uh, and their indications also fall along the sleep initiation and maintenance uh, 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 category. So. Uh, 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 so, uh, for example, Remelteon or Roserum is, is a melatonin receptor agonist whose activity is limited to sleep initiation. So it's mainly meant for people who have difficulty falling asleep. On the other hand, a low-dose doxepin, uh, which is an H1 or histamine receptor antagonist, is indicated only for sleep maintenance issues. So it's mainly meant for people who have difficulty, oh, difficulty maintaining sleep. Suvorexant, the orexin receptor antagonist, is global in the sense that it's meant for people with difficulty both falling asleep and maintaining sleep. Now, a couple of other parameters to look for with all of these agents is scheduling. Of all the agents I mentioned, doxepin and remelteon are the only two agents that are not scheduled or do not have a DEA scheduling and are, are, are less problematic in patients who have histories of drug abuse, drug addiction, and so on. And they may be, uh, they may be more desirable in that type of population. Uh, 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 so, those, so, so these are some of the questions to ask for and the, and, and the relevance of those questions vis-a-vis which drug you might want to choose. So can I ask about, uh, I guess, the safety concerns, specifically with Zolpidem, because that's the one I, I think I'm most familiar with. I remember as an intern, I would just hand that out like candy and really in truth so I could get sleep, so my, my patients <laughs> would sleep through the night. And then I think it was 2012, I think there was a BMJ, if I remember correctly, sort of review about uh, higher mortality um, with patients that took even like less than 18 sulpidem a year, and then even like an association with throat cancer. I'm just wondering, has that been uh, the other side effects not, notwithstanding? Is that type of concern still a thing, or has that been discredited? Yeah, so, um, Paul, these sorts of data come to us from meta-analyses um, um, uh, performed on large, large numbers of studies, large cohorts of patients, or, or maybe one study with large numbers of patients. But these are not controlled studies. We're basically, in most of these cases, they're looking at insurance databases or you know, studies conducted for other reasons, and patients are monitored in terms of their sleep compounds and various symptoms. And it's very difficult to control for confounding effects uh, so it's unclear in any of these studies whether the medication that's statistically associated with higher rates of mortality or morbidity, whether the medication is the cause of these effects or whether in some way it's, it's uh, 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 coincidentally an effect related to some other third cause that's not detected by the study. Um, so a, a similar set of studies came out in terms of uh, hip falls, uh, hip uh, fractures and falls in the elderly. So many studies implicated sleep medications as being uh, responsible for uh, hip fractures and falls. But then there were a couple of other studies in women 
uh, where the effects of the medications were factored out. In fact, these were studies uh, with women who did not were not taking sleeping pills, but the uh, but when they looked at poor sleep, poor sleep was independently related to hip fractures in these women. So. Again, we don't know. Is the insomnia the critical factor that, that results in taking sleeping pills? And then is it the insomnia that then causes the hip fractures and the falls and the mortality? Or is it the medication? We just don't know. I think the bottom line there is insomnia itself can be a problem, a problem in terms of performance and, and, uh, and uh, in terms of morbidity. So I do think it's important to, to clinically uh, really assess the patient. Is there... If they're impaired from the insomnia, treatment is valid. But on the other hand, look for side effects. Make sure that you're not really making matters worse. When when you put someone on a Z drug and you're counseling them, do you tell them that this is something that I want you using every night? And and how long are you normally prescribing these for? Is it is it in the months? Is it months or is it years? Right. So I think it depends on the nature of the insomnia. If the insomnia is a um, uh, is a is an intermittent problem, which lasts one or two nights a week, uh, and especially if the patient can predict which nights uh, that insomnia will be occurring, uh, uh, then I th- I do think PRN use is is a great idea. So as an example, some people have their most profound sleep difficulty on Sunday nights when the next day they have to go back to work. Uh, or you know the day before a major presentation, your grand rounds presentation, whatever, and they tend to be on the anxious side, uh, uh, or or they're going to act, or if they're planning on asking their boss for a raise. I do think their PRN use makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, some people have insomnia almost on a nightly basis, and for those folks, I do think it's a better idea to uh, prescribe the medication uh, for nightly use on an every night basis for a circumscribed period of time, uh, a month or two months, something along those lines. And then after that period of time is over, to then assess with, with the patient whether or not they're doing well. And if so, then to gradually reduce that medication's dosage and to get rid of it. Um, and, if they, and, if, and, and the way to do that, by the way, is not to switch to an every other night or every third night use, but to actually decrease the dosage of that medication on an every night basis until they reach such a tiny dose that they really don't need it any longer. Uh, And in that particular scenario, by the way, uh, data have shown that if you begin to introduce CBT, uh, relaxation techniques and so on, into the mix at that two or three month period of time, you have a much higher likelihood of getting that patient off of that sleeping pill than if you do not do so. So to answer your question, Matt, it's a, it depends on the flavor and the nature of the insomnia. If it's an intermittent problem, then PRN use is better. If it's a if it's a nightly or almost every night problem, then using it every night, whether you need it or not, is is better. Well, I think I like that approach because I'm I'm definitely a bit stingy with these medications because I'm a little bit skeptical about the safety of them for a lot of my patients, uh, and also I want to I want to get my patients to do the non-pharmacologic therapy. So I will often sort of bargain with them. This is not something that I want to prescribe you for years. And am I correct that are they technically only FDA approved for short-term use? The older medications, the the non-Z drugs, if you will, such as, you know, Halcyon or Triazolam and so on, uh, had a one-month limitation, uh, mainly because the these agents were studied for only a month and no longer. Uh, the newer Z drugs, for the most part, 
uh, no longer have a limitation in terms of uh, length of usage. Uh, and that's because many of them have actually been studied for up to uh, six months or even a year, showing minimal uh, minimal introduction of new new side effects and also no tolerance uh, in, in groups of patients, as I said, for up to one year compared to placebo. So uh, it's now accepted that these drugs can be used for long periods of time, and that's sort of parallel to, unfortunately, the nature of insomnia in many patients, which is a, that it's a chronic and unremitting condition, uh, which may require chronic therapy. Uh, Matt, the, the problem in in, in these chronic unremitting insomniacs, the problem in telling them to take the drug only for a month and no longer, or only to take it for two or three nights and no more, is that they begin to then uh, do something called spectating, where they uh, begin to monitor their sleep to determine or decide, is this the night that I should take the medication or not? And that decision process itself may increase their anxiety and activation level and may carry them well into the wee hours of the night when taking the medication becomes too late because the sleeping pill may have a long-acting potential. So taking the weight of decision-making off their hands also diminishes their anxiety uh, uh, to, to some extent, and then you can then decide when it's the appropriate time to begin weaning them off of the medication. Uh, that's a that's great advice because <laughs> I might have uh, stressed some people out by by doing just that. So I I definitely need to change my practice in that regard. <laughs> um, I'm kind of the same boat, and then I I often worry that I'm treating a symptom of a, a graver disease rather than primary insomnia. So I, I think I'm probably along with you, Matt, where I'm a little bit probably more stingy with the medications probably than I even need to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's not it's not a bad idea to be stingy, but be stingy on the dose, not the frequency of administration. Do you follow? Yes, absolutely. The uh, sir, I, I want to d- check with you. Are you okay on time? I know we had you till one thirty, and we've gone a few minutes uh, over here. Oh, sure. Yeah, I actually I'm okay. Yep. I think we only perfect. have a couple minutes uh, worth more of questions. But I mean, I'll talk to you for two hours if you're willing. But <laughs> actually, my kids are going to start breaking down the door here, so I got. <laughs> um, okay, so. We we talked about doxepin. Uh, that's that's a medication that I I can say I haven't used. And when patients, a lot of my patients will tell me that they're taking Benadryl or diphenhydramine. Uh, it might be called something else. Uh, over the counter, there's a million things that have diphenhydramine in it. Is that uh, are those agents also safe like doxepin is to use for sleep? So the doxepin that I was referring to isn't the old doxepin, which was indicated for depression. This is a medication which re- which was reformulated in a very low dosage, three and six milligrams, as opposed to the older antidepressant dose of 100 or 150 milligrams. And at this very low dose, it's a very, very highly selective histamine receptor antagonist, as opposed to the higher dose, where which is which whose effects are quite non-selective along the lines of both histamine as well as uh, anticholinergic uh, areas and, and so on and so forth. So um, the so at that low dose, doxepin is indicated for sleep maintenance insomnia. Diphenhydramine, unfortunately, is a dirty drug, and it has not only histaminic potential but also anticholinergic, adren- alpha-adrenergic potential. So it does, in fact... Uh, potentially have the effect of cardio acceleration, cognitive abnormalities, um, urinary retention sometimes, and even uh, in some cases can cause significant levels of daytime sleepiness. So um, my suggestion is to 
be careful about using using that, especially in older populations. And by the way, some studies have shown a greater rate of delirium and cognitive side effects in older individuals. So in the older person, to limit the dosage as much as possible to, to, to low levels and to be very careful, monitor them carefully for the first few weeks of, of administration to make sure they're not having side effects. Um, but but, but, uh, but um, diphenhydramine can be a problematic drug in vulnerable people. I, I just... Sorry again, Matt. Would <laughs> doxepin be a good choice for patients who have uh, comorbid substance abuse? I know that insomnia is often uh, very comorbid with particularly alcohol abuse, but I think a lot of the, a lot of, um, with a lot of substance abuse in general, is doxepin sort of a preferred agent just given sort of the lower potential for abuse? Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and, the, and we spoke of this, about this before I came on board, Paul, but oh. not only doxepin, romelteon as well. Those are the two agents not having a, uh, a DEA um, uh, uh, restriction in terms of scheduling. So uh, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. And how about the cost of that agent? I, I'm not familiar with it. I, I, I'm not sure if the Cashlack formulary uh, allows <laughs> us to prescribe that. But uh, yeah. So uh, – uh, uh, yeah, so it, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure about the cost of these agents. Obviously, for us in civilian life, that kind of depends upon uh, the um, uh, what what contracts their uh, that patient's insurance company is forged with that particular mm-hmm. uh, 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 formulary. So, but and, but uh, there is a a liquid form of doxepin available. The old doxepin that was indicated for any, as an antidepressant indicated for pediatric usage, uh, pruritus, I believe. And uh, I, off-label, uh, have uh, recommended that for some adults who cannot afford, you know, the, the prescription insomnia doxepin. And with that, with that uh, dropper, which uh, it's, it comes with a dropper, the dropper goes up to 10 milligrams. And I simply instruct people to take a third of a dropper or two-thirds of a dropper uh, at nighttime for sleep. And who knows, that's never been studied specifically for insomnia, but uh, presumably, it does the same thing. And I'm looking here on GoodRx.com, it, which uh, was recently recommended to me by a physician who I I think was a legitimate source. And uh, it looks like it's anywhere for a bottle from like uh, eleven to fifteen dollars, maybe twenty dollars if you get it at a more expensive pharmacy for that 120 mLs of a 10 mg per mL solution of doxepin. So that might be a nice workaround for patients who you know, don't have, don't have the funds. Right. Um, that's, that's cool. Okay. Uh, all right. So the, so I am correct. That, I'm glad that you kind of vindicated me. I've, I've really given some of my patients a hard time about the Benadryl thing because they, they complain of daytime grogginess and I'm telling them it's the Benadryl they've been taking for the last 10 years over uh-huh. the counter. And it, it's pretty hard to get people to stop doing that. So, yeah. okay. Paul, do you have uh, any any more questions about specific agents? I the, the one other area that I, we haven't talked about, sir, that I, I would love for you to comment on is the the use of mirtazapine, which is also remeron or trazodone, um, because those are those are ones, and and particularly are they are they okay to use in the elderly by your estimation? Yeah, so both of those agents are long acting compounds in terms of their daytime effects. Uh, so again, the caveat is daytime sedation. Uh, mirtazapine, not, neither of those is indicated for insomnia specifically, but mirtazapine at low doses in particular, 7.5 milligrams, may have more of a 
sedating effect than than the higher doses of uh, uh, you know fifteen or thirty milligrams, and in some elderly, especially those who may have um, difficulties with uh, uh, you know weight loss and so on, mirtazapine also tends to favor weight gain. So people use it off label for that particular purpose. Um, again, the, the important thing is to watch out for side effects and uh, both. Uh, mirtazapine and trazodone or Desirel have really not been well studied for insomnia and tend to have, at least in my, in my hands, uh, uh, you know, um, unpredictable effects in terms of insomnia. Some people on trazodone benefit, some don't. Some have daytime sedation. So uh, I'd be a bit careful and make sure that they're not having, not, not having side effects. But hey, look, if, if they work and people are not having side effects, you can't quarrel with success. And something you said there, I just want to point out to the listeners, because I did not know this, and uh, I probably have to rethink some practices. You said 7.5 milligrams paradoxically would be more sedating than the 30 milligram dose or the higher doses. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. And it's just because the lower dose tends to favor the histaminic receptor. Okay. That is, that's, that's a very good pearl of wisdom there. Okay. <laughs> Says Dr. Wado Gilbley. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, this is why we're, this is why we're talking to the expert. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I think I am sort of out of questions. Um, I think, oh, you know what? I just saw the, the you mentioned suvorexant. We didn't really get into that. And that's such a new agent that I, I think we should, at least give the listeners and and me an idea of who we should think of for that agent and who's able to prescribe that. Uh, sure. Well, suvorexant is uh, you know a um, an orexin uh, receptor antagonist. The orexins or the hypocretins are a group of neurotransmitters um, recently discovered, uh, who which are basically hypothalamic peptides localized in the dorsolateral hypothalamus. And they really have, these neurons have wide projections throughout the brain. Uh, they impinge upon the, um, uh, uh, the, many of the alerting or activating neurotransmitter systems such as serotonin, norepinephrine, epinephrine, uh, acetylcholine, and so on. And uh, they seem to be uh, responsible for not only arousal within the brain, but also mediating this transition between arousal and sleep. So in the brain, we think there is this switch system which essentially switches us from waking mode to sleeping mode at nighttime and then in turn from sleeping mode to waking mode. And that switch system, uh, if you will, uh, it depends upon the balance on the one hand between these activating neurotransmitters, which as I mentioned, uh, serotonin, epi, norepi, and so on. And on the other hand, the sedating neurotransmitters, which are primarily uh, GABAergic in nature. So GABA on the one side and all those uh, uh, other neurotransmitters on the other. And the switch between these two systems needs to be an orderly one uh, as opposed to a haphazard one going back and forth throughout the course of the day. You don't want to be asleep and awake all day long. Uh, and the orexins or the hypocretins seem to maintain that orderly transmission back and forth. There's a natural disease 
which is characterized by a deficiency of the orexins or hypocretins, and that's called narcolepsy. And in narcolepsy, that deficiency, we think, causes a willy-nilly back and forth between sleep-wake and sleep-wake during the day. So people are asleep and awake all day and at night too. So people's nocturnal sleep is highly disrupted. Anyway, so um, uh, uh, the... the, uh, the um, uh, orexin receptor antagonists have been developed, such as suvorexant, uh, which essentially promote sleep by antagonizing that waking quality or arousing quality. And many people believe that the agents like this tend to go closer to the heart of the issue with insomnia, which is, of course, a hyperactivation or hyperarousal process, although that's, that, 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 that needs to be sort of uh, uh, vetted just a bit further. Uh, so suvorexin is indicated for both insomnia initiation as well as maintenance. At this point, there's no... Uh, there are no data suggesting that it's better, if you will, or more suited for any particular type of uh, comorbidities within insomnia or any nature of insomnia other than, the, than to say if people have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep, then the drug does both. Uh, but at this point, there are no other clinical features which could guide us to determine as to whether this might be a better or worse drug in any other, clini- in other, in the, in any other scenario. Can generalists prescribe this medication is it, or is it currently restricted to more professional persons like yourself? <laughs> Not at all. Anybody, any physician with a medical license can prescribe it. It's a Schedule Four agent uh, like uh, the Z drugs. And uh, its main side effects, of course, are like any other medication, the potential for daytime sleepiness. So one should use the lowest effective dosage of the drug. Uh, the lowest dose is t- starting dose is 10 milligrams and typically – we go up with increments of five milligrams uh, every few weeks or month if the drug is not effective, and the maximum indicated uh, dose is, is 20 uh, milligrams. The drug is contraindicated for obvious reasons with narcoleptics who already have a deficiency of orexin in their bodies uh, or people who have cataplexy, which is a narcolepsy symptom. The drug has been studied in uh, medically ill people who have mild to moderate impairment in respiration during sleep, mild to moderate sleep apnea, mild to moderate COPD. And in those people, uh, the, 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 the relative safety of, of that drug, uh, Suvorexin, trade name Belsamra, has been demonstrated. Although, just to be on the safe side, obviously, I would go ahead and treat these folks with their COPD or for their apnea to, before you put them on any sedating drugs just to make sure that they, uh, they're protected. And I'm looking this one up uh, on GoodRx. It looks like it's a bit expensive, $300 for 30 tablets um, of the 20, 30, yeah, 30, 20 milligram tablets would, would run you $300. So that's the highest dose. But right. that's, uh, so certainly certainly more expensive than your the doxapin workaround that you had just told us about before. Right. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that one. I, I might... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I'll be prescribing it anytime soon, but it is certainly, I, I'm, I'm glad to be aware of it. Um, sir, uh, if if Paul doesn't have any more questions for you, I think we can uh, wrap up. Paul, any last minute things that you wanted to cover? I guess in terms of medications, the last one I might ask about just because it's always at the bottom of the list. I'm just curious how if it's actually used as gabapentin. I, I've, I've seen a couple of reviews sort of mentioned as a possibility as an agent. I'm just wondering if that's if there's a patient population for which that's appropriate and how you might use that. 
Right. So gabapentin does not have an FDA indication for insomnia per se, but uh, a, a number of studies, these are placebo-controlled studies, have shown that it may, may not be so great for initiation of sleep, but certainly for maintenance. That is to decrease numbers of awakenings and keep people asleep, and they may not be such a bad drug. And uh, many people use it off-label for uh, uh, people with histories of drug abuse or misuse, uh, where we don't want to have a scheduled compound on board, or people right. have comorbid pain disorders or neuropathy. Uh, I use it a lot with restless legs patients or people with limb disturbances during sleep, like periodic limb movement disorder, as a catch-all drug, which basically both helps sleep, but at the same time also may help their limb movement specifically. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it, it's a drug which has, uh, I think, a, a possible role in patients with multiple comorbidities and insomnia. What sort of dose do you need to use to get that effect? It's very variable because gabapentin is sometimes poorly absorbed. Uh, so I, I generally start with 100 milligrams. I'll go up to 300. And in some people, if that's not effective, six or even 900 milligrams, as long as they're not too sleepy during the course of the day. Okay. So that's, that's significantly less than for diabetic neuropathy and some of the other conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic pain. It's Around, uh, not eight, eighteen hundred milligrams would be a common dose to use for those for those indications. Right, right. function permitting. Yes, good point. Um, okay, sir. So, if you wanted to give us a couple take home points, I mean, I think I've learned a lot. This has been awesome. Uh, take home points, and then if you have anything you wanted to plug, uh, please let us know. Well, I guess I guess the take home points are number, in terms of insomnia. Number one. I think it's important to look for it uh, in, in the primary care setting, especially. Uh, many of us don't ask about sleep, but I think it's important to ask, how do you sleep? Did you, the, how long does it take you to fall asleep? Did you have problems staying asleep and so on? Because identifying it and treating it, I think, can help a lot of our patients function better during the course of the day. So that's number one. Number two, if patients do voice the complaint uh, spontaneously, then to do a bit of a, me- a, bit of a workup, rather than to jump to treatment, uh, because as we've spoken so far, identifying the specific comorbidity can allow us to treat that specific disorder with a specific agent or, 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 or uh, procedure and be able to get rid of the insomnia that way. And number three, to really seriously consider if it's a primary insomnia, to, cons- to seriously consider uh, cognitive behavioral strategies, which uh, are not only as effective as pharmacologic strategies, but have longer lasting potential. Number four, if we do use medication, uh, to do a bit of a, um, uh, uh, or to ask a few questions about the flavor or nature of the sleep difficulty, whether it's initiation or maintenance, to be able to gear the type of medication we give specifically to, for that patient's insomnia. And finally, number five, I guess it is, uh, to be able to do regular follow-ups with patients who are on these medications to follow them and monitor them closely for side effects. Awesome. And any anything you'd like to plug or tell our listeners to look out for? Well, I, I, I guess if, uh, if physicians listening to this or people listening to this have questions about sleep, uh, I would recommend they uh, reach for resources. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine, ASMnet.org, uh, is fantastic. It has a lot of excellent information on sleep. Uh, another one is sleepeducation.com for patients who want um, um, to imp- export uh, or to download, I should say, uh, sleep logs or get information about specific sleep disorders. That's, I think, extraordinarily helpful. So those are the only two areas I'd like to, uh, to plug in uh, for, for our general listeners. 
Great. This has been so, so much fun and very informative. I have a couple areas that I need to tighten up in my practice, which I'm, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you taught me about those things. Yeah, it's been extraordinarily helpful. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been great speaking with both of you. All right, sir. I will let you know when this comes out, if it's okay with you. Uh, we, we will often um, let the, the person's home institution, so in your case, Jefferson, we would, we would uh, contact them and let them know you were on the show uh, so they can promote it if they see fit. Um, okay. But that, that would be great. Fantastic. All okay, right. guys. Well, have a great afternoon. Yes, you much. too. Okay, take care. Bye-bye right. now. Bye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This will help others discover the show. You can contact us on our Facebook page, our page on LinkedIn, Google Plus, or you can follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, here with co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Bye, Paul. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right. I think that's, uh, I think that's okay, I guess. <laughs>